I'm Steve McLeod and this is Bootstrapped. It's a podcast for people running bootstrapped software companies or wanting to run one. I run two bootstrapped software products, Feature Upvote, which lets your customers vote on ideas to improve your product, and Sabre Feedback, which offers a feedback widget you can add to your website. Follow along as I learn from talking to other bootstrappers and experts, and just maybe you'll learn something too. Joining me today is frequent guest co-host Ed Freifogel. Hi, Ed. How are you doing, Steve? I'm doing fine, but I have to admit something. After 18 months of doing this podcast, I still get a little bit nervous before every episode. And frequent listeners or regular listeners may have noticed that I start with almost the exact same words every episode and I finish with the exact same words. That's because I'm actually reading off a script. Well, you know I'm reading off a script for the opening and closing. It's like the... uh, a little technique I use to try and make sure I get those nerves under control. Well, I mean, Steve, the script is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, the whole production team and the costume people, the voice coaches, the the makeup, the, the ma- all of it. I mean, if people knew what a production this was behind the scenes, that you know, I think they'd have a lot more appreciation for for the time and effort you put in. And they think we're just that living and we're just making things up <laughs> as we go. Huh? I mean, how many takes do we have to do? Usually like 30 takes for each episode and, you know, it's a lot of work. Well, part of what we said is true. The uh, the scripted opening and closing is the, is the, the true part of what we just said. Ed, what's been happening? Uh, well, not much, man. I mean, you know, lockdown life. What have we been up to? One day drifts into the next, man. In terms of in the business, the main thing I've been working on is, uh, you know, more marketing. We're trying to, this quarter is all about marketing, so refreshing the site, refreshing our marketing page, I've been working with the designer on um, some better illustrations and things, which it's always kind of a challenge because, you know, our business is an API focused business. So there aren't really like screenshots to show or things like that, but it's turned out pretty good actually. And hopefully that'll go live later today. Oh, cool. And then the other thing, the other kind of thing we've been trying to do on the marketing side of things is using Twitter as a, as a channel. So I've been doing some, you know, tweet threads and things like that, kind of educating people about aspects of our of our service. And that's actually been going pretty well. And then we did a really fun one a couple of weeks ago that we're going to try to make kind of a tradition. And that was we we had a customer, you know, bug report about a specific thing that wasn't working. And then we started digging into it and we found this really interesting bug. And so then we thought, well, we should, you know, this would be kind of a cool trivia question. What was so basically the bug? The, so the bug was it had to do with they did a search where um so in the US, as, as you may know, every state has a two-letter abbreviation in, in postal addresses. Okay, like CA for California and NY for well, New York. So, so CA CA is a perfect example because CA is a, is the abbreviation for California, but CA is also the international abbreviation for Canada. Okay, so you can have a place, let's say you have a town, you know, there could be whatever, I don't know, Windsor, California, and there's also a Windsor, Canada. So someone does a search and you can't really know which one they mean, right? Mm-hmm. And basically we had examples where we were kind of doing this badly. So, but then we started, we, we figured out that that was the bug and we're like, well, how often does this occur? How many, how many states are there like this? 
And it turns out there are actually quite a lot. And so we did... You mean like states where it's also a country code? Correct. Correct. Where it's also a two-letter country code. I mean, it's like more than 20. <laughs> and so, you know, we started digging into this and we're like, wow, this is good more than we thought. Anyway, so then we, we, the idea was like, how do we turn this into useful content? And so we did a trivia question where we posed that question to our followers who are all kind of geo geeks. And we're like, you know, how many, how many states, how many state postal abbreviations are there that are also country codes? And people started replying and stuff. And there are some that are actually really tricky and non-intuitive because the the ISO list of countries is kind of a weird historical anomaly list. So there are some regions that are not countries that have their own ISO code. So a good example of that would be like the the U.S. state of North Carolina is NC, and but there's also a, a territory called New Caledonia, which is part of Vanuatu, France, which has its own which has its own uh, ISO code. So anyway, people got kind of into it, and you know there were lots of tweets flying around and stuff. And so then we thought, let's make this a cool, maybe we'll try to make this a little monthly tradition. So now what we're going to do is on every final Friday of the month, I mean, it's kind of a fun thing, like as the work week is winding down, you know, so in, in the afternoons on the final Friday of the month, we're going to post a, uh, a geo trivia question and see if we can get people kind of engaged with it. And so, you know, marketing doesn't always have to be completely boring. No. Uh, well, I think you've got a really good field for interesting stuff. Like, I think it's far yeah, easier to find interesting things about geography than it is about feedback buttons. You, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> to pick an example totally at random. Anyway, so that's what I've been up to. But, but I mean, I guess one caveat to that is I'm always a little bit hesitant to embark kind of on another process or thing that's going to yeah. kind of become a treadmill. Yeah. So, you know, we're, if we say we're going to do this every Friday, uh, final Friday of the month, then obviously we need to do it. So, you know, it's always a little worrisome where you're saying, oh, well, am I now just creating like a new bit of work that I always have to do? So, but let's hey, try it. Let's see how it goes. Hey, can I ask you a, a question about your business from the political side of things? Tell me if, if the podcast is completely wrong venue to discuss it. But this well, I'll of- be very upfront with you, Steve. We embrace complete anarchy. we're unrepentant about that unrepentant there's plenty of um contested territories on this earth for example golan heights officially belongs to syria it's been occupied by israel since i don't know when and i think even the words i'm using to describe this different people have different opinions how do you deal with the fact that there's places on this earth that you have to have in your api and different countries claim ownership yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Actually, this might be something that we would do a tweet thread about because it comes up fairly often. So basically, we use whatever is in OpenStreetMap. OpenStreetMap is the uh, crowdsourced database that that we rely upon. So it wouldn't make sense for us to kind of establish our own policies or whatever. You know, like I don't have a particular opinion or or even like a, a sufficient level of knowledge about most disputed territories in the world to even have an opinion. And the way OpenStreetMap generally, with a few exceptions, works is what they call the on the ground rule. So whatever is actually physically on the ground is deemed to be what should be mapped. So so let's take, for example, one that's probably near and dear to your heart, which is the situation in the in Spain slash the Republic of Catalonia. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, obviously there are people who would like there to be an independent Catalonia and and you see kind of flags and signs up and stuff in Barcelona or across Catalonia. 
Um, and that's all fine and good, but the reality is on the ground, uh, it's it's controlled by Spain. So And so OpenStreetMap deems that to be part of Spain, and, and thus we also deem it to be part of Spain. But it does raise a good question, because sometimes people are sending us in, I mean, not to go too deep on geo stuff here, but um, it's funny because a lot of people, you know, the world changes and then people don't update their database. So like we still get people searching for addresses, you know, with the country Yugoslavia and things like that, just because it's some ancient database. And so you kind of need to support historical places or, you know, disputed names of places and things like that. So uh, challenging work. Really challenging. I really find this fascinating, far more than, than dealing with feedback buttons and feedback uh, feature upvoting boards. Yeah. So anyway, that's what I've been up to. Anyone who's interested, please please do follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is OpenCage. And if, you, if you're into some geo geekery, then the final Friday of each month, kind of in the, I think we're at three o'clock in the afternoon, European time, we'll kick off our little contest and you can follow along. Okay, so, I'll make sure we put a, a link to that uh, that Twitter account, Twitter handle in the show notes. Cool, cool. What about, what about you, Steve? What have you been up to? Well, let's start with Twitter. Um, it's interesting that you've been doing this because I've also tried a little Twitter experiment. A couple of weeks ago, I created a new Twitter account just for this podcast at Bootstraps. If, I don't even know what it is. I'm obviously not very well prepared and people yeah. think we script this whole show. And what I'm doing is scheduling a tweet every Monday to Thursday at 9 a.m. with tips for bootstrappers. The idea okay. is to try and use it to build up more of an audience for both our online community and for our podcast. And it's also an experiment to see what I can do with Twitter. If, if this is effective, then I'll try and use the same approach for my, for my businesses. So far, we've only got a, a handful of people following the Twitter account because this stuff takes time as you know you need to just do it over and over again day after day week after week but the the tools I'm using are really nice there's this tool called Hootsuite which allows me to schedule tweets in advance so it actually makes the whole process so easy in just a few minutes I, I schedule all the tweets for next week in fact I did it just a few minutes before we started this podcast recording uh, okay I don't use I, I'm not as big a fan of the old scheduled tweet I mean, I guess it's. A, I should probably experiment with it, but I, I don't know. I like the live interaction of Twitter, right? And I just feel like sometimes the scheduled tweet. It's just. I mean, it can be if you have good content that's informative. Sure, why not? I mean, it could be useful to people, but I don't know. I I enjoy the the, the live interaction of it. Yeah, if people do start interacting with the tweets, I'm certainly like getting notifications and will act and respond to them. But yeah, I see your point. And there's some some accounts I have followed for a while on Twitter, and it's just so obvious that scheduled tweets without any follow up. Exactly, from the, exactly. Yeah. And that there's no like soul or emotion to it, or you know, wit or you know. And I just find that that's a turn off. I'm quite active on Twitter, and I follow a lot of people, but also a lot of companies and stuff. But if if a company is just always, there are two things that get me to unfollow rapidly. If it's just yeah, they're always just putting out kind of dry, boring content that, you know, isn't directly in the field that I'm interested in. I follow. And then the other thing is when people are always just retweeting anything anyone says about them, like uh-huh. positive news about themselves. I don't know. It, that's what I'm like, it's too much. Like, like the same way you wouldn't, you know, imagine if every time we hung out, first thing I'd be like, Steve, check out these six great new things people <laughs> said about me. You know? 
Yeah. I mean, you know, it just kind of comes off as a little weird. So <laughs> moving on, I got a little bit of news about feature upvote. Uh, we got a purchase order from the NHS and you would know that a purchase order is actually a significant part of the process of getting a new customer. Once that's happened, it means we're in their procurement system. They've officially agreed to buy us and they now need the invoice. I'm really happy about that one. The NHS, uh, for those who don't know, is the UK's National Health Service, very large organisation, very well respected in the, in the UK. And uh, and I, when they first contacted us about eight months ago, my first thought was, there's no way we're going to be able to get through their system to deny people from doing stuff. But we got there after eight months, and it's not a, it's not a big contract, but it's um, something I'm really proud to have landed. Yeah, dude, you should be. That sounds like a great customer. Uh, they're just using it internally, so it's for their own, their own um, IT department. But very gotcha. happy about that one. Okay, cool. The Sabre feedback. Now, I know I told you this news privately, but I'm going to mention it here on the podcast. So we, we did an update about Sabre feedback, my progress with it in the first nine months of me owning it. That was about a month ago. Since then, the news is that I got four new paying customers last month for Sabre feedback, which is easily the best month since I acquired it. You know, I was getting zero or one customer per month. And then you know, we had this month where it's like all the things came together and I felt like it's finally actually starting to get some traction well i think all probably all your work of the last year is finally you know reaping benefits um they have that saying that revenue is a kind of backward looking metric and and i really think it's true like you got to put in the work and then at some point people find the product and you know eventually become customers and so you're benefiting from all the efforts of the last summer and stuff so, it was congrats. certainly a relief when it happened, but you know, you you don't know when you're doing the work. Is this the work I need to do to make something happen in six months, or am I just wasting my time and I could be out outside, like taking a walk along the beach or something? This I find so frustrating. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> I mean, that that's the the never-ending battle of like this thing I'm working on. Is it the right thing? And you know, it won't be clear for maybe weeks or months or whatever. And yeah. or or and particularly if it's like you're spending time, you're spending money, you know, this is the big challenge with all the marketing efforts we've been working on. Particularly, I think with a a service like ours, where yeah, like I, I know we've talked about this before, but you either need the service or you don't. So most of the people that I'm contacting with my marketing or that that are, that are becoming aware of our service, they're currently not in the market. So you know, I can only hope that six months from now or a year from now or whatever, when they are in the market, then, you know, we're top of their list. So, yeah. Yeah. And this is not the way business is portrayed in the media or especially in Hollywood, you know, the Hollywood uh, trope, somebody makes some lovely biscuits and they taste really good. And then within a month, like uh, they're shipping out all over the world and they've got a team of a hundred people. And, and the reality is, you know, you just, going slowly grinding away in the dark, not sure what works and what doesn't and just hoping. And even with sales, like I said, it took eight months for me to get this NHS uh, purchase order. And for that whole eight months, I just never knew whether it was going to go nowhere, whether I was wasting my time, whether at some point, ultimately the, the system inside the NHS would just say, no, we can't go with these people for whatever reason. Yeah. Well, hopefully the more of those types of deals you get you as you encounter 
you know, the typical objections, then you find a solution for them. And then with the next guy, it's, you know, he asks for whatever the security review and you just have it and you just send it to him or whatever. And, and so it goes faster. And then I guess the only other solution there's, uh, you know, you need to have, instead of having one project, one potential customer that's running eight months, you need to have 10 going in parallel. Yeah, right. Right. And, and so that one of them, you know, some percentage of them will come to fruition. Right, right. Say so you manage to land 20% or 50% and then it's just becomes a numbers game. You still have to execute well, but it's a numbers game. How to get people into that funnel. Exactly. And my final bit of news is that I am speaking from my new apartment. Perhaps my voice is reverberating a lot. There's a bit of echo because we haven't moved in the furniture yet, most of the furniture. So it's a bare room I'm in and that's bad for audio. Other podcasters would know this. Uh, you need to have like rugs and furniture and things that muffle sound. So sorry for if the if the sound um, is a little bit reverberating today. Hopefully the, the our editor, podcast editor, will be able to fix that to some degree. But it's really nice being in this new home office. Haven't had one for a couple of years because of our daughter being born and her my office becoming her room. So I'm I'm really ecstatic about that. Uh, we're just a couple of blocks from our old apartment. So even though we haven't moved everything in yet, we're renting both apartments this month. The I, first thing I did was already set up, like bring over by hand the stuff I needed to get the, the new apartment usable. Well, I'm looking forward to a, to a huge wave of productivity then. Congrats. You say that, and I think there's actually some truth to that, right? One of the nice things about being a bootstrapper and working from home is you can ultimately make your working environment exactly how you want it. Unlike when you work in a big corporation and there's all these rules about how what you can and can't do. And I think it does make you productive. I think you're right. I think you're although there is also the risk that you kind of slip into your bad habits, you know. I mean, it's like everything and when when it's just you or it's a small business, like the good side is you get to do everything. The bad side is you have to do everything, right? So yeah. like yeah. You know, unless you go out and buy an ergonomic chair or whatever, then you just sit on a bad chair and like break your back. So it's up to you. When I left the corporate world and started working from home on my own business, the first thing I did was to buy multiple monitors because I had read over and over that it was proven that this is a productivity gain for knowledge workers and to try and get this uh, approval for this in the corporate world was impossible. But now I thought I now am in control of my own environment. I'm getting that second monitor for like 200 euros. Bang. The, the problem though I find Steve is like, I mean, yes, you can set up your environment exactly the way you want it, but then it really spoils you when you like travel or whatever. Then all of a sudden you're like at the cafe and you're working mm -hmm. on a laptop and you're like, this sucks. I can't work like this. You know, I don't have my jumbotron. <laughs> it kind of really spoils you. I find. Yeah. Right. This is a danger. It can also take you away from a experience that your typical customer has where they are working on one 19 inch cathode ray tube monitor on an old version of windows and a keyboard where half the keys don't work or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. I, I exaggerate exactly. a little bit, but yeah, it does. That is a problem. And actually the very last consulting gig I ever did, <laughs> I just remembered that they like the, the people who are project leads of multi-million dollar projects couldn't even get permission to buy the, basic tools they needed oh, this guy who was the head of the project of the development having to use a shareware product or a trial version product of a database uh, editing tool and 
every time he started it, he'd get a Nagware screen saying, oh, you should buy this. You can start using it yeah. in 30 seconds. And he would just sit there patiently. And I asked him, like, why don't you just buy it? And he said, like, it's impossible to get permission from the organization for, for something that only costs like $50 or $100. That's the kind of thing where you should strongly consider switching jobs. No, I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I wouldn't have the patience for that. Like, and and actually, at my old company, you know, when when I had a company with like fifteen, twenty people, we would actually we had a budget for every person so that they could, you know, modify their desk or whatever the way they wanted. I mean, you know, it wasn't an open check or whatever, but you know, some people had standing desks and some people had different things. So. It's important that people are able to work productively. Otherwise, why hire them? It's productive and also the feeling of some sort of control over your own environment exactly. leads to yeah. more content people and more content people. Well, it's just the right way to treat people on top of like making them productive. Yeah. yeah. Hey, question for you. A conversation I had privately with somebody was about zombie customers. Do you know this concept? I, I do know this concept, yes. This is... Uh, Should we try I to explain the, what we mean by it? Yeah, I would say it's kind of like the dark side of, of the SaaS model, it, particularly the subscription element of the SaaS model is that, you know, people sign up for a subscription and then they don't use the service, right? So they're still paying, but they're not using it. I mean, I guess they would, a great real-world example would be apparently, I saw this stat once, but, you know, a lot of people sign up to join a gym, with the kind of best of intentions of like, oh, I'm going to be in the gym, you know, five days a week and I'm going to finally get in good shape. Uh, and then the reality is like half people don't even go to the gym and, and, but it takes them, you know, before they get around to admitting to themselves, they're not going to go to the gym and actually canceling. And of course, gym, many gyms are notorious for making it hard for you to cancel or whatever. But yeah, so that's the concept of a zombie customer, a customer who's paying, but not utilizing the service or under utilizing the service in some way. Okay, so perhaps so, paying on, they're on a high plan, but they should be on a low plan, or as well as those who are paying and not actually using it. I guess, yeah. No. <laughs> I, th I think there are different approaches to it. I mean, the, the, the question is, what should you do as a business owner in this case? Should you notify the customer in some way? Should you proactively downgrade them? Should you, uh, you know, and I have mixed opinions on that because on, on the one hand, Maybe they, I guess it probably depends on the amounts or whatever, but I mean, maybe they're paying just for the knowledge that if they need to use the service, it's there, you know, mm -hmm. and they're fine. I, it's funny because it's so weird in talking with my customers, at least, depending on the organization that they're in, the size of it and the, the culture of, of wherever they are or whatever, you know, some people, you know, fight tooth and nail to get a 5% discount. Other people are like, oh yeah, 500,000. I don't care, whatever. We do, <laughs> we, we need this, you know? I, I mean, some people are so price sensitive and others are just completely insensitive to the price. It's more just about having a, a high quality product that's completely reliable and they don't mind in quotes overspending to achieve that. Um, yeah. Yeah even if they don't even need to use it for whole months at a time. Yeah, right. It's still worth it to them. It's just yeah. the, the knowledge that they can, at a moment's notice, you know, it's there and it's dependable and reliable. So, With your, with your gym parallel, I remember that a, a friend's girlfriend joined a gym here in Barcelona. She took out a yeah. year membership. She went three times in the year, but then when it was time for renewal, she happily renewed for another year. 
because she still had this idea she was going to go. And we worked out how much it was costing her per session to go to the gym. It was just like crazy. Like she could have like instead used that money for a really good personal trainer, et cetera, or whatever. Well, and, this raises the question, Steve. It's like, what is she paying for? What What is she purchasing, right? Is she purchasing actual time exercising in the gym or is she purchasing the 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 perception that she is a healthy person yeah a person who invests in her health she can have conversations with colleagues saying oh yeah at my gym exactly uh, exactly yeah. so maybe she's completely fine with that and she just yeah. you know whether that's self-delusion yeah. or whether she's aware of it or not i don't know but well, the thing is she's an adult and she's made this decision herself and i think you know it, it's not for other people to to control what decisions she makes and i think that's also one way I look at zombie customers, look, people sign up and it's not my job to go and control other people's finances. On the other hand, I wouldn't want somebody like paying for my service that they've forgotten about and somehow the email notification emails are not getting to them. And But I think I, I would be more on the side of the first one. It's It's up to other people to control their finances and keep on track of what they're doing. Well, I think there are also a couple of pieces to that. One, as a business owner, you should, of course, be aware of how many zombie customers you have, because obviously it's, I would say that's uncertain revenue. You know, you have to assume at some point they're going to be like, why am I paying for this if I'm not using it? Um, and second of all, it, you know, I think you need to make it easy for people to cancel, downgrade, whatever it is. Like it shouldn't be, it's really annoying when you have a situation as a customer and you you kind of feel like you're trapped and it's not it's difficult to downgrade or that that i think is completely unacceptable but on the other hand if it's easy to downgrade and cancel and you're sending them you know a payment confirmation every month or like a reminder every month then i completely agree it, it's it's up to them to say yeah yeah do they want it or not and to me, that's a non-negotiable. Of course, you send out a, a, an invoice every month. And if it's a, if they're on a yearly subscription, you send out a, a warning a few days before the annual renewal. And the, this stuff you just do. You don't act. I wouldn't ever want to actually try to be tricky and, and cultivate zombie customers. Yes, I agree. I agree. I, I completely. I mean, I, I mean, in our case, obviously, it's a legal requirement to send people an invoice and things like that. So, yeah, um, I, we pay for Slack, and Slack kind of um, change only bills you for active customers, active users. Sorry. So, if somebody's away for a month, then Slack thinks, "Oh, that person's no longer actively using it," and they send me an email to say we've put credit to your account because you now have less active users, which I think is one interesting approach. But to me, it's just too much. It's like Slack. I know people are coming and going. Can we just like pay our money for the year and, and be done with it? I think that's it's a, a really enlightened approach, though, and uh, good on them for trying it out. It means that if you stop using your Slack account altogether they just stop charging you. Like they decide, oh, you're not using it. We're not charging you anymore. Yeah. I mean, from the customer perspective, that's obviously great. Thinking from the business owner perspective, it's a challenge, right? Because like, yeah. like my customers pay me to have a highly reliable service, mm -hmm. right? So I have, I have everything sitting there just waiting for them to use it. And that has costs, right? So... <laughs> Even if they don't actually use it, I still have costs. 
and obviously you can try to be smart about how you do that and make sure it scales up and down. And so you're not just burning money or whatever, but you know, I don't know. It's difficult. Like I, I have, I have ongoing costs that I have to, you know, somehow cover. Yeah. So I can't just say like, Oh, everyone, Oh, it's Christmas. And you know, no one wants to use it. Like fine. We just won't charge anyone. Yeah. Yeah. I I also think, I mean, actually in in our space, there are some of our competitors have complete usage based pricing where it's like the more you use, the more you pay. And in some cases it starts at zero. So if you don't use it, you pay nothing. Um, And we don't, we have a, a base subscription and on our subscription plans, we also have one-time plans, but, but it's funny because some customers, again, it, it varies a lot based on the, the perception of the customer, but some customers ask for usage-based pricing, but then others, I find they're just like, oh, I just want, they, they absolutely do not want usage-based pricing because they're unable to predict their usage mm-hmm. completely accurately. And they just want to know, they want to be able to plan like, okay, it's going to be whatever it is, you know, 50 euro a month or whatever, you know, and then they, they have certainty. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not, they don't want to hyper optimize every little, every bit of it. So I want to suggest that not having um, a plan where you start at zero is really wise. I think you're avoiding some of the more difficult, uh, time consuming customers, the ones who are not prepared to pay that minimum monthly fee for a reliable service available. Like, they're probably not ideal customers to have. Well, I mean, we do have a free trial, of course, so yeah. so people can play around for free and get everything set up and working for and task our service. And but yeah, it's funny. I mean, you have some people who fight about our our extra small plan. You know, like this is an outrage that you're charging fifty dollars a month for it. I only want this much, and it should be only. You know, why can't it be usage based? I'm like, oh my god, dude, come on, I have a count. Yeah. So you you've done well to avoid those customers. Really, if they're yeah. complaining at that point, you're a product aimed at businesses. If a business can't pay fifty dollars for the service they're getting, then I don't know, let your competitors have them. As long as you're still earning enough, like getting enough customers to make things profitable. Yeah. So my, I didn't get a chance to say it, but when I had this private conversation about zombie customers, I I wanted to say, look, just, just roll with it. It's just part of business. As long as you're actually regularly contacting customers with uh, newsletters or invoices, it's up to them. It's really up to them. And I wouldn't lose any sleep over that. Well, I do think though, as a business owner, as I said, you need to know how many zombie customers you have and what percentage of your revenue that represents because it's probably a safe assumption that it will at some point go to zero. You know, like those yeah. customers will, are highly likely to churn, obviously. Yeah. And should we talk about the other type of zombie customers, like real zombies? I, I don't know what you would do with them. Like I personally wouldn't want to have real zombies in my business. Well, the issue, I have no idea who's at the other end of the keyboard, Steve. Don't know. It could be the undead, undead customers. Okay, we should wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. So as always, thanks for the interesting chat, Ed. Thanks, Steve. Um, If anyone out there has any thoughts on zombie customers and how they handle it, um, would of course be interested to hear. So get in touch. Definitely. Okay, bye, Ed. Bye. Bye, everyone. That concludes this episode of Bootstrapped. You can discuss this episode and other bootstrapping topics on our forums at discuss.bootstrapped.fm.